Good morning, church. <laughs> good morning, church. I'm Austin. I'm a pastoral intern, if we haven't met. Um, and it's... <laughs> And it's my pleasure to be opening up God's Word with you this morning. You know, friends, we are uh, indeed on the home stretch, uh, aren't we, in the book of First Peter. Um, and it's my hope, on earnest hope that this book, the time that we've spent already in this book, has given you a, a newfound grace in your life here now. But also, it's, I hope it's strengthened your hope. As, 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 as Andrew so well led us through communion, has strengthened your hope for the return of the Lord Jesus. I know for myself, it's just been just a wonderful time, actually, uh, a refreshing time, just giving me an eternal perspective on life. And you know what? I trust that the passage that we're going to be looking at today would feed right into this theme. So let's have a look at First Peter We're looking at chapter 4. We're going to run from verse 12 to verse 19. Verse 12 to verse 19. Come up on the screen. This is what it says. Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us a fresh perspective this morning on suffering, on hard times, on the fiery trials that come into our lives. There's so many ways and tactics that the world gives us to manage our sufferings, but this is unique, what you give us here, Lord. And so, Father, by your Spirit, impress upon our hearts this truth. Give us a fresh understanding. May it give us wings to suffer well for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, uh, just this week as I was preparing for today, Ivy, my dear wife, she asked me um, at the dinner table, hey, what are you preaching on this Sunday? I was a little bit too busy with my food and I simply replied, suffering. To which she replied, what? Again? In another instance, just this week, a good friend who will remain unnamed likewise said, oh, you're up for preaching, right? Uh, What's it on? Again, I said, suffering. To which they simply replied, oh, 
And they gave this like pouty, sad face mixed with a tinge of disappointment that we again had to cover this heavy and sobering subject of suffering. You know, it indeed is a theme that features considerably in this book, doesn't it? And as you know, when Peter wrote this letter, he, he couldn't just hit the caps lock button, right? It's not like he was recording a podcast and he could crank up the volume. No, the only way for him to emphasize the importance of us understanding suffering was simply for him to reiterate it time and time again. Now, despite the very reasonable expectation that today's sermon will cover the grim topic of suffering, I nonetheless have gone ahead and I've titled this message, The Blessing of Christian Suffering. The Blessing of Christian Suffering. Now, I'm not in any way trying to be smug with this seemingly contradictory title, nor am I in any way trying to trivialize the sufferings of Christian brothers around the world, both present and past. But I've titled the message as such because I genuinely think that such a title is faithful to what the Apostle Peter writes to us in these eight verses. Accordingly, then, my hope, my hope for today's message is simply that we may see that Christian suffering, Christian suffering is actually a blessing from God, that we would lay hold of the biblical, the biblical idea that Christian suffering is actually a blessing from God. And it's a blessing for four reasons. It's a blessing for four reasons. It's a blessing because it is purifying. It is a blessing because it is a privilege. It is a blessing because it is providential. And lastly, it is a blessing because it is personal. Purifying, privilege, providential, and personal. Okay, let's start with purifying. Now let's entertain, firstly, a a hypothetical situation. Say you're on the welcoming team. You're on the welcoming team one week, and a visitor arrives at our church for the very first time. Just before the service starts, they come across to you and they ask you a quick question, a bit of a strange question. They say to you, hey, I know this is a a bit of an odd question, but I just want to check, I just want to check for a moment that this church doesn't believe in the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. You know the belief that once you become Christians, that everything becomes easy in life? To which I'm sure you would quickly reply, Oh, no, 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 not at all. You know, we're, we're a gospel-centered and reformed church. We believe that the heart of the gospel is Jesus taking upon himself the penalty for our sins, to which the visitor would breathe a great sigh of relief and join us in the service. Job well done, welcome team. But let me share with you an observation. Despite our gospel-centered and our reformed credentials, we all, we all, both you and I, believe in the prosperity gospel at some level to some degree. If you as a Christian have ever thought to yourself, what on earth have I done, God, to deserve what I am going through? 
Or if you've ever been upset at God for letting you go through a painful ordeal in your life, or even if you've simply cried out the words, why God, why? Then the prosperity gospel is in operation at some level, at some degree in your life, at some level deep in our hearts, far away from what we would ever confess with our lips. The operating principle in our life is one of, I have believed in you, God. How can you possibly let this happen to me? You know, this expose of our hearts, it's not... It's not meant as a word of condemnation. No, not at all. In fact, God sees. God sees how this operating principle is so often at work in our hearts. And so through Peter, he addresses us with tenderness, with tenderness in today's passage. Come with me and read verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Firstly, look at how God, through Peter, addresses us as beloved, as beloved. From the very first words in this passage, it reminds us that we are loved, not forsaken. We are cherished not abandoned. This opening word, it's critical. It's critical because it sets the tone for what follows. Everything that is said from this point on springs forth from God's heart of love with the warmth and the affection like like that of a parent reassuring a nervous child. Peter then insightfully gives us the litmus test, the litmus test to check whether the prosperity gospel is actually a functioning principle in our hearts. If we have ever been surprised or caught off guard by suffering in our lives, then it is probably indicative that we believe the prosperity gospel to some degree in our lives. How true is it, friends, that when we encounter suffering, we are more likely than not to view it as something, something abnormal? Or to use the words of the passage, something strange. Literally, in the Greek, as if something alien had arrived in our lives. Listen to what this commentator insightfully observes about how expecting suffering in our lives is simply not our standard expectation. It's not our default state of mind, is it? This thought runs counter to modern sensibilities that consider suffering and hard times to be an abnormal state of life that should be avoided if at all possible. And if they can't be avoided, they should be, they should be dealt with expeditiously so that, quote-unquote, normal life can resume as quickly as possible. This is our mode of thinking, isn't it? Yes, Peter encourages us not to be, not to be surprised when suffering comes. But on the other hand, he's also realistic 
He's very realistic about our sufferings. He doesn't downplay our suffering. He doesn't minimize it. No, he fully acknowledges that times of sufferings can be called nothing less than fiery trials. He doesn't minimize it. Just knowing some of the the trials that are happening even in the midst of our congregation, the heartache, the incessant pain, the chronic illness, the overwhelming sense of weakness, the loneliness, the, the rejection. Peter is most certainly correct in calling these fiery trials. But there also is a double meaning in the term fiery trials. Yes, it describes the nature of the trial, doesn't it? But it also describes the function, the underlying reason for trials. The fiery trial isn't fiery for fiery's sake. It is fiery for the purpose of refining us, for making us pure. I mean, even the Greek word for fiery trials, porosis, sounds like what it means. It's to purify, like, you know, like metal ore being smelted in a furnace where all the impurities of our lives are consumed in a fire and nothing but pure gold remains. You see, we are prone to, to point to things, blessings even in our life, to say, look, Look, this is evidence that God loves me and is for me. Good blessings. But at times, God takes these things away from us to to purify our faith, to reveal the genuineness of our faith, to burn away the circumstantial reasons for us believing in him, to consume any lingering concept of the prosperity gospel in our hearts, such that the sole remaining reason that we trust in him is simply founded upon the pure gospel of Christ crucified, of Christ resurrected, of Christ ascended, and of Christ coming again. Friends, remember what Peter writes even at the very beginning of this letter. This is what he says. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, brothers and sisters, yes, even through the, the real and the present pain of our suffering, we must look with spiritual eyes to see the blessings of how These sufferings are purifying us, purifying us. Point number two. Christian suffering is a blessing because it is a privilege. Because it is a privilege. Read with me verses 13 to 16. But rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
You see, friends, we can understand suffering in terms of three broad categories. Three broad categories. Firstly, we may suffer as a consequence, as as a consequence or as a result of doing evil. If you if you murder or you steal or do any sort of evil, even down to the seemingly trivial sin of being a meddler or a busybody in other people's affairs, we may suffer the consequences of these actions, effectively reaping what we sow. Another name of this kind of suffering is deserved suffering. And of course, Peter urges us here to to distance ourselves from this kind of suffering. Secondly, our suffering may be actually unrelated to any specific sin that we commit. It may be the result of someone else's sin. We may be the victim of someone else's sin. Or simply the result of the fact that we live in a broken and sin-shattered world. This kind of suffering is what Jesus actually referred to when he spoke about, remember, the Tower of Siloam, and it fell over and it killed 18 people. Jesus himself said that the suffering was not in any way because those killed were more wicked or evil than the average person. This kind of suffering often takes the form of sickness or illness, maybe loss of loved ones, um, natural disasters. Another example may be racial oppression. Another name for this kind of suffering is Innocent suffering, innocent suffering. So we've had deserved suffering, innocent suffering. But lastly, we have what is called righteous suffering, righteous suffering. This is suffering of the highest order, suffering for actively doing what is right, being repaid evil for good, slandered for being a blessing, hatred by men for doing the will of God. Friends, Jesus Jesus humbled himself to live amongst his enemies. He healed the sick, he gave sight to the blind, he taught the simple, and yet he was maligned, he was mocked, and he was murdered. He died in our place so that we might live. He carried our sorrows. He bled so that we may be ransomed. By his wounds we are healed. Jesus' life and death is the definition of, is the definition of righteous suffering. Now, the Oxford Dictionary defines privilege as a special right or advantage available only to a particular person or group. A special right or advantage available to a particular person or group. Now, have a look at verse 13, church. Rejoice insofar as, or to the degree you share Christ's suffering. Rejoice to the degree you share Christ's suffering. Brothers and sisters, we have the unique privilege of sharing, of partaking in Christ's righteous suffering. Every time we suffer because we identify ourselves as belonging to Christ, whether explicitly through what we say or implicitly through the way we live our lives, we have the privilege, the privilege of sharing, the honor of sharing Christ's sufferings, his righteous sufferings. 
And this indeed, it's a great privilege, isn't it? In fact, something Peter says that we should rejoice in, that we have been given the grace to walk that same narrow path that Jesus walked, that we've been given the grace to recognize that suffering comes before glory, that the cross comes before the crown. On top of that, suffering for Christ's name is also a privilege because still in verse 13, it says that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. This is what our whole communion today was about. You know, every time that you suffer for identifying with Christ, you are being primed. You are being primed for the glory of his return. Like an archer pulling back on a bow. As you suffer for his name, God stretches out all the slack in the string of your life such that you may be propelled to unseen heights of joy when he returns. Unseen heights of joy when he returns. You see, when you suffer for Christ, it grows your appetite, your hunger for his return. The valleys of human rejection only makes the mountaintop of his return all the more glorious. Furthermore, if you look at verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests it rests upon you. Church, suffering and being insulted for the name of Christ is a privilege. It's a blessing, in fact, because it is indicative of Christ's presence in your life. Remember back in the Old Testament, in both the Moses' tabernacle and in Solomon's temple, what was the tangible sign of God's presence? What was a tangible sign of God's presence? Well, it was when the cloud of glory descended when it rested and it filled the tabernacle, when it filled the temple. But in the New Testament era, when you are faced with the option of sinning or denying Christ or staying true to him, the tangible sign is no longer the cloud of glory. It is when you choose to suffer, when you choose hardship instead of denying Christ. Brothers and sisters, what higher privilege is there in all the world than having the tangible presence of the true and living God in your life as you suffer for his name? Let me tell you the the story of Perpetua. The year is 203 AD, and Perpetua is a 20-year-old lady living in Carthage, North Africa. She is a wife. She's a mother. She just gave birth to a, to a newborn son. She's an educated woman from a well-off family. And she's also a recent Christian convert. However, at that time, Emperor Severus declared it illegal to convert to Christianity. As such, Perpetua was thrown into a hot and overcrowded prison because of her conversion. Her father and her brother 
pleaded with her. They came to the prison and they pleaded with her to renounce her faith and to return home to her loving family and to her newborn child. Yet she replied, I can't be called anything except what I am, a Christian. One day she and five other Christians were suddenly rushed from the prison to the court and they were questioned about their conversion to Christianity. All they had to do to be freed was to renounce Christ and to offer just a small sacrifice to the gods for the well-being of the emperors. When it came to Perpetua's turn, her father pressed forward to the front of the court, holding her baby son and pleading with her, Make the sacrifice. Have pity on your own baby. Even the judge said to Perpetua, Have pity on your father's gray head. Have pity on your own infant son. Offer the sacrifice for the well-being of the emperors. She replied, I will not. The judge then asked her, Are you a Christian? To which she declared, I am. Then the judge passed sentence on all six of them. They were condemned to the beast. They all returned to their prison cells high in spirits, all to be martyred shortly after. You see, friends, Perpetua embraced, she embraced wholeheartedly the privilege of sharing in Christ's suffering. She held firm to the privilege of suffering now in exchange for intensified joy at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. She treasured the privilege of God's presence in her life well above the approvals and the appeals of those around her. You know, this may seem like a bit of, a, bit of an over-heroic example. But remember, we are called to suffer for Christ in the context to which we are called. As such, I want to just take this opportunity to encourage and to commend those of you who already are living like Perpetua actively recognizing the great privilege it is to confess Christ's name, knowing full well the suffering, the suffering that it may bring. Those of you who are actively and openly speaking about your trust in Christ in your workplaces, despite knowing the fact that you would be seen as a bigot, that you'd be seen as outright weird, even backwards, Those of you who have excused yourself from certain social settings, knowing that the activities that take place in these social settings don't honor Christ, you do this despite knowing that you will be stamped as an old-fashioned prude. Those of you who prioritize gathering as the body of Christ, even though it means being branded with the stigma of just never being available on Sundays. Those of you who have made decisions, ethical decisions in your workplace based on your Christian convictions for which you knew full well would be a career-limiting move. Those of you who continue 
to share your faith with your families, despite coming from or even living with families who think that your whole worldview is extreme and imbalanced. Those of you who have made the difficult decision to remain single, even though it meant turning down the prospect of a non-Christian relationship. Those of you who have made difficult decisions, even about giving, knowing how it would materially impact your lifestyle. Church, there really is only two ways to live, isn't there? The world around us lives by the principle of suffering minimization. Suffering minimization. But when we see with clarity the privilege it is to suffer for Christ, we are freed to live out the principle of glory maximization. Glory maximization. Not our own glory, but living in a way that maximizes our experience and our testimony to God's glory, even when it means suffering for us now. Point number three, Christian suffering is a blessing because it is providential. Because it is providential. For something to be described as providential means that it comes under God's faithful care and guidance for all things towards the end that he has chosen. Let me say that again. For something to be described as providential, it means that it comes under under God's faithful care and guidance of all things towards the end that he has chosen. Now let's look at what Peter reveals to us in verses 17 to 18. This is what it says. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You know what is revealed to us in these verses? It's actually, it's amazing. It is absolutely amazing. In these verses, God is, he's pulling up the bonnet. He's pulling up the bonnet in some sense to let us see the intricate design his divine design, the inner workings of how he is bringing everything to its final completion. He's giving us a look into his providential decrees. However, the first question that comes to mind when we, when we read a passage like this is, what is meant by judgment? What's meant by judgment? And why is the, the household of God undergoing judgment? Well, in this case, judgment doesn't mean, it doesn't mean condemnation. Judgment in this sense does not mean condemnation. But instead, it takes a bit of a broader definition of evaluation. Evaluation, right? Or put, put more simply, it's a process of, of sorting. It's a process of sorting, a process of evaluation. So in effect, God's judgment, God's process of evaluation has already begun with us. It's begun in his church. It's begun with his very own people. And through the purifying fire of suffering for Christ, he is, he's evaluating. 
He's evaluating our lives. He is separating out the pure gold of faith from the, from the worthless dross of unbelief. In other words, he's, 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 he's sorting through our lives, isn't he? He's sorting through our lives. He's burning off what is worthless and he is purifying what is precious. And in this sense, he is doing what is providential. It's purposeful. For every time I, for every time we have cried out the question, why God, why? Here, here lies the answer. My suffering, our suffering is part and parcel of God's faithful care and guidance of all things towards the end that he has chosen. Though fiery, though painful, it is his ordained means to carry us to the end. Though painful, Though fiery, this is his ordained means to carry us to the end. Our suffering, it's, it's not pointless. It's not arbitrary. It's not meaningless. No, it is providential. It is filled with purpose and glorious in its end result, which is why we can still say through the deepest possible pain that it nonetheless is a blessing. It's a blessing, but, but if, the, if the purifying fires of God's providential care for those who believe in the gospel is already so painful, imagine for a second how unbearable it would be for those who reject the gospel. Paraphrasing the, the proverb in verse 18, if the righteous is saved through great hardship, what will become of those who remain in their sin? To put it another way, if the fire of God's holiness is already so intense for the gold, what will happen to the straw at the final judgment. This is what Dennis Johnson writes. If the purifying fire entails for those united to Christ such anguish as Peter's readers are undergoing, what shall the consummation of that purifying divine presence mean for those who have rejected God's good news, if not a conflagration of utter destruction. Which is why, my friend, which is why, my friend, if you are sitting here today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, if you are yet to make him your refuge, your rock, your shelter, your shield, I plead with you that you delay no more. Don't, don't languish in the guilt of your sin for a second more. Turn to Christ who took upon himself the penalty, the penalty for your sins. 
my friend, I, 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 cannot, I cannot promise you in, in any way that your life here now would be any easier than it is if you follow him. But I urge you to take today's passage to catch a glimpse of that final day where the fire of God's holiness will be so manifestly intense that the only sanctuary for your soul, the only sanctuary for your soul would be in the ark of Jesus Christ. You know, the truth of the matter is that here on earth, we have a mixture of two future eternal realities. An alloy, an alloy of sorts between two groups of people with two very different destinies. And God, the master smelter, is applying heat to separate the two. For those who reject Christ, life here on earth, to put it very frankly, it's the best it's going to get before eternal destruction. This is the best it's going to get for you. But take heart, church. Take heart because life here on earth with all our suffering is really the worst it's ever going to get. And the heat, the heat of suffering we now feel is actually preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We now come to the last point of today's message. And, and that is Christian suffering is a blessing because it is personal. It's personal. This is what verse 19 says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know, Eastern religions, Eastern religions would tell you that suffering is just merely an illusion, something that you experience because you've got inordinate desires in your life, inordinate attachments. If you simply empty yourself of these desires and your attachments, then the illusion of suffering will, will dissipate. In other words, change your mindset and your suffering will end. The onus is on you. On the other hand, modern Western thinking, secularism, will tell you that this life is, is all that we have. And so suffering must be drastically avoided. It must be mitigated. It must be alleviated. In other words, again, it comes down to you. It's your responsibility to manage your life so as to minimize your suffering. Is there any wonder then that, that as you go to the bookstore, there is an endless demand for self-help and life improvement books? Again, the onus is on you. But the Christian approach, the Christian approach to suffering is completely different. It is personal. It is relational. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You know the word entrust? The word entrust is the same word as making a deposit. 
making a deposit. However, if you go back to Peter's time, they didn't have the conveniences of our modern banking system. And so if you were going on a, on a long journey, right, you would have to deposit or you would have to entrust your life savings with a neighbor, with a neighbor while you were gone. This obviously required a personal relationship, doesn't it? A personal relationship, an intimate knowledge of the integrity of your neighbor. Oh, what a blessing it is, brothers and sisters, that this path of suffering that we travel isn't, as the world tells us, a solo endeavor where we are left to fend for ourselves. It involves a personal relationship, an intimate trust in the faithful creator who created all things, who sustains all things, and who is bringing all things to its completion. You know, as I close, let me briefly share about a time where where the Lord brought a period of suffering into my life. And I tell you the truth, I, 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 um, I knew pretty well that this period of suffering was for the purpose of burning off specific sinful aspects of my life. He was using it to sanctify it. I knew it, I knew it. I knew pretty clearly that this was a season where he very much was doing heart surgery on me. Despite that, it was still painful. Painful. And I felt in the midst of that pain as though I was just coming to my wit's end, just coming to my wit's end, just just losing it. I was losing it. And so I cried out to the Lord, and he graciously answered me. He personally answered me. And he gave me a very simple picture in my mind's eye. A very simple picture. A picture uh, from behind of, uh, of, of the Lord Jesus and I just walking down this long stretch of dirt road. Just a long stretch. I couldn't see either of our faces. It was a picture from behind. And all the Lord Jesus did for did in that picture was that he he put his arm over my shoulder and he pulled me in close. Just two things. He put his arm on my shoulder and he pulled me in close. Even now, like as I speak about, I can see it so vividly in my eye. My situation didn't change. My circumstances contributing to the suffering didn't change. But that simple, personal reminder that the Lord was walking with me in the midst of my suffering. It it broke me. It broke me. You know, words um, cannot describe the the depth of comfort that I I felt in the midst of pain. And it it seems really strange to say, but if it were not for the pain, if it were not for the pain, I would have failed to grasp the immensity of his comfort. 
If it were not for the pain, it, I would have failed to grasp the immensity of his comfort. Oh, how much more, church, when we actually see the Lord Jesus face to face. Every moment of suffering in our lives would completely make sense. So much so that we will see with perfect clarity the blessing of our suffering. The blessing of our suffering. Let me leave you with a final quote that touched my heart this week. And it actually comes from the Life Explored course. And it says this. If your trust, if your trust is in Jesus then not a tear, not a tear in this life will have been wasted. Every, every single one of them was preparing in you a greater capacity to enjoy the resurrection that is coming. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, you have addressed us just so tenderly today in the words of this passage. You see the idols of our hearts and you are purifying us through it. It is not meaningless. It is not uh, without purpose. It is not arbitrary. But it is providential and it is good. It is our privilege, Lord. And we thank you that we never have to walk alone. This is not a struggle of solidarity by ourselves, but that you walk with us in the midst of us. As it was for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you are with us in the fire. And you are ministering to us as we are in the midst of our trials. You are such a faithful God and we thank you for your goodness towards us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.